Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin, and this is episode 18 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Stephen Geringer. For the past 15 years, Stephen has collaborated with the Joseph Campbell Foundation a global community of artists, scholars, writers, educators, and questers. Together, the Foundation and Stephen work to preserve, protect, and perpetuate the work of Joseph Campbell. Stephen discusses his projects with the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which included authoring the Practical Campbell series of comprehensive essays on mythic themes and currently editing a volume compiled from little-known interviews and audience Q&A sessions with Joseph Campbell. In the interview today, Stephen takes us back to his formative years and highlights the turning point that led him to the work of Joseph Campbell. He provides a brief biography of Joseph Campbell and details how the story sequence of events Campbell coined the hero's journey applies to ordinary people. To learn more about this episode and find links to the show notes, visit the podcast website at carlina.net. From there, you can review past episodes and sign up for the mailing list. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a note on iTunes. Your support helps people find the show. I'd like to thank Stephen Lorca for video editing and production so we can post our episodes on the YouTube channel as well as the podcast. Now I bring you Stephen Geringer. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of a a fan of of yours as well. I mean, I've been following the, the Joseph Campbell Facebook group for a little while now, I guess um, I found it shortly after I started the podcast, and I'm just always in, impressed with just the insight that you provide and the the thoughtful um, comments. And so um, I feel like a little bit intimidated because you just seem like this master <laughs> Joseph Campbell sage. <laughs> so. On page, on paper, I'm sure I do come across that way. But there's the chance to be deliberative and reflective Uh and whatnot in real life. Different story there. So no worry being intimidated. I've got my hippie duds on. so (laughs) I see that. (laughs) Well, cool. Well, cool. Well, um, yeah. um, So why don't you just tell me a little bit about you now, what you're up to, and you mentioned that you're, is it transcribing Joseph Campbell's audio interviews? or? Yeah, uh, well, what we're doing, uh, and this may be the last posthumous work of Joe's that comes out. Uh, well, in fact, I'll, I'll just jump in this way. Yeah. There are really two types of Joseph Campbell work, so to speak. There's his written work, which is very erudite, very dense, very much in the way Carl Jung's collected works are, where you have to unpeel paragraphs, you let it absorb, which is wonderful. A lot of stuff that he wrote that dives deep. Some people have trouble with that today's soundbite society. Uh, Not that that's a negative, but there's also another type of Joseph Campbell writing, 
uh, which I think first pops out in his book of essays, Myths to Live By, which are really transcriptions of lectures that he gave at the Cooper's Union in the 50s and 60s in New York. And I call that Oral Campbell. And it's much more relatable. That's what turned everybody on to him first. The power of myth interviews. When you hear Joe speak, there's a magic in what he says. He doesn't necessarily provide footnotes as he goes along, though he does a fairly good job of that, too. The man has an amazing memory. So we've published a lot of posthumous work of his, and by we, I mean the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which is not me. I'm just one little cog in this wonderful collaborative effort. Uh, but... Um, some of the best-known works, like Pathways to Bliss, for example, came out in 2005 and became a bestseller. Uh, Joe's a little bit like Jerry Garcia in that regard. You know, some of his best work keeps coming out after he passed away. Mm-hmm. And that David Cudler edited, but it was edited primarily from lectures that he'd given. Mm-hmm. And a number of his posthumous works have been that. Others have been using notes and mm-hmm. uh, essays and so on uh, that we've collected. Okay. So... We have a wealth of material, little-known interviews, some in print, uh, some from book tours, some very deep, in-depth, profound interviews, and then a lot of audio recordings of interviews that, um, uh, you know, some last for hours, of which maybe a little bit Mm -hmm. was excerpted for an article or for a radio program or something. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of material of that oral Campbell Mm -hmm. where he's just conversing. And so he's a bit more casual, not quite as intimidating perhaps Mm -hmm. as, you know, his in-depth written work. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking that material and a lot of it is audio. Some of it is print. Mm -hmm. Excuse me while I bring one of my writing partners up here with me. (laughs) That's okay. I have my writing partner over on the couch. She snores occasionally, so Uh, (laughs) you might hear it. Grand dame of the office. My office manager is asleep over here. On That's that great. Bed. And then head of security is over by the window. So okay, so you got everything covered. <laughs> pretty much. You know, another okay. cat is out on the perimeter. So okay. you know, <laughs> we fit in with ancient Egyptian mythology. We we know who what the deities are in our household. Right, yeah. But the so I'm taking that and we also have a lot, many hours of Q and A sessions, like at the end of lectures, at the end of presentations, mm-hmm. uh Class audio. I mean, Joe recorded all sorts of things. We, the the foundation itself, uh, digitized with the help of George Lucas, who provided the technicians mm-hmm. uh, a couple decades back, uh, and we've been continuing the work of digitizing upwards of a thousand hours of lectures wow. that he. Only of which about a hundred uh-huh. are we releasing commercially. The rest go into the archives uh-huh. and will be available to scholars and the general public as they're cataloged and right. so on. People okay. can listen to that or do research there. A lot of that is the quality that you really can't just mm-hmm. pop it onto the internet. In fact, some of his material, you know, in the 70s, a lot was on cassette tape, 
Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s, in the 60s, 50s. A lot was on reel-to-reel -reel recordings, but also he had wire spool recordings going back to, you know, some early lectures and sessions mm -hmm. of his. And you okay. just can't feed that into the computer. So right. a lot of what doing is preserving that the equipment for a lot of that doesn't necessarily exist either mm -hmm. but we have a wealth of material if i'm answering questions questions that people have that they want to know questions mm -hmm. about you know the role of the heroine the role of women mm -hmm. uh you know all sorts of things relating okay. to you know yeah. his and his age so i'm piecing those together some things like uh, his four functions of myth, you know, discussing what the functions of mythology are. Mm -hmm. He repeats that a lot in lectures, in his books, and so on. Uh, but kind of coming up with a definitive version of that. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting because in one interview he might start off talking about the metaphysical or the mystical function of myth. And then the interviewer interrupts they go off on a fascinating tangent but never get back to it so mm -hmm. some of that comes from one interview some comes from a question and answer mm -hmm. session i'm pasting that together wow. so it's a little bit like putting together a twenty thousand piece jigsaw puzzle yeah with a picture on the box yeah when did you start doing this well a Semi-officially, uh, Bob Walter, the foundation, uh, the basically the co-founder of the foundation with Joe's uh, widow, Gene Erdman, he handed a lot of material to me all the way back in, I think, 2006. Mm -hmm. But then I got involved with other aspects of the foundation, uh, especially in those days, the situation was often the boss. So I, I was brought aboard as an essayist to mm -hmm. do writing, uh, write an essay series, which was great. I was a paid writer. <laughs> that worked. Uh, yeah, even though it was a pittance, it was wonderful to have yeah. people read my work. Uh, but then that morphed into other tasks and other responsibilities. So I was derailed for a number of years. A lot of my responsibilities have been lifted mm -hmm. in the last couple years uh, so that I can focus on this. So at the moment, I also spend a lot of time in the planning and coordination of our annual mythological toolbox workshops, which are kind of immersion in the hero's journey, if you will. Oh, okay. uh, one of which is every spring at Esalen during Joe's birthday week. Uh -huh. uh, another one, we hold one closer to the East Coast in the summer. That's been up in the Catskills at Spillian the past few summers. And then, obviously, moderating the mythological toolbox. Mm -hmm. Not the mythological toolbox, the mythic salon on mm -hmm. Facebook, where we first connected. Right, right. Okay. So... Oh, that that's kind of gives you a little bit of sense of what I do. I make presentations to classes too, talk to students. My my specialty, in a sense, is junior high school because mm -hmm. I taught junior high, um, and that's a fascinating age to teach. A good age to start introducing the hero's journey to them because it's going to come up in literature, mm -hmm. but also 
the connection is how it comes up in, in life. Yes. So that's a little bit of what I'm doing now. I, I don't know if that helps. Anybody. Yeah, no, that does. That does. Yeah. And if you want to go back and just tell me a little bit about your, just your, your formative years and what brought you or led you to do this type of work. And I, and I know you mentioned that you did teach junior high and, um, I think that'll bring us up too, because I really want to get into your perspective of the hero's journey and how it applies to you know everyday folk. <laughs> so very much, yeah. So just about right. your formative well, years, yeah. Well, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> this may take more than a couple minutes. That's okay. uh, mythologically, we call it the origin tale. This, I guess, is my origin tale, and I'll start actually. And then flash back. I'll start with where I first encountered the work of Joseph Campbell, okay. which was in line to the Grateful Dead concert. And lines of Grateful Dead concerts, they tend to last for a long time. People camp out, hang out, have a good time, con converse, party, play a lot, you know, toss frisbees around in hacky sacks and so on. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this very cute blonde girl in tie-dye, go figure, that... <laughs> dead show uh, with a book yeah and the book looked like it was up my alley very much into history that's what my degree is in you know i love reading love research it seemed a good way to open a conversation with her so we started talking about the book she was reading and all sorts of other things eventually the gates opened everybody streamed into the show i have no idea what happened to the beautiful hippie nymph, but the title of the work stayed with me, which was Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. So I found that book, I read it, and it opened doors. Now, I didn't go as deep into it as I could. I didn't have the grasp of the hero's journey that I do today. At the time, I thought this is a very erudite work on mythology, on history, on religion, comparative religion, and it spoke to me in particular because I grew up in a very strict, rigid, fundamentalist Christian cult, a small group of about 50,000 people at the time, uh, a Sabbatarian uh, group, so we observed you know, the, the Saturday Sabbath, the Jewish festivals, Christmas was pagan, Easter, pagan, Halloween, we don't even want to go there, uh, and all sorts of other restrictions, right down to who you could marry, very controlling in terms of one's life, and Jesus was coming back any day. He keeps getting delayed, but at the time it was imminent, mm -hmm. and so that was a very restrictive, very authoritarian group. By the time I got to college, I started educating myself out of that, and I kind of moved in the other direction, very anarchistic. Actually, I discovered Ayn Rand, and today I think of myself as a recovering libertarian. I actually became active in the founding of the Libertarian Party in California, ran for office several times locally for Congress and, and so on. Uh, so I moved in that direction and that I ran very ego-based, you know, very much very heroic in a sense, but not in the Joseph Campbell way. Mm -hmm. So that, in a sense, was a bit of a reaction. And when I found Hero with a Thousand Faces, that helped explain to me, give me a context 
for the group I grew up in, the, the, the cult, which had prepared me for things like, you know, the pagan origins of a number of Orthodox Christian celebrations and so on. So my mind was open to that, and it kind of provided a different setting. Uh, that helped tremendously. But I didn't go much beyond that. Then in my college years, you know, studied quite well, graduated summa cum laude. I thought I was heading in the direction of, you know, I wanted to be a professor of history. Was headed in that direction, but then my dad contracted stomach cancer and eventually died of that. So I was pulled into his business in part at first to keep income coming in for my father and mother. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, that business was selling grease and oil uh, to farmers and truckers and loggers up and down California's Central Valley, uh, which it's, it's wonderful, it's important work to do, but it definitely is not me. I had fallen into the unintended life. And then after my dad died, I kept on doing that. I had done a little bit of substituting, mm -hmm. substitute teaching, after graduation from college, while I was getting my bearings, and when he first fell ill, and at that time I was a horrible teacher too. My idea of it was that you know, as a sub, you're just babysitting the students. Mm -hmm. My view changed over time, and I think I can thank Joe's work for that too. But I was definitely living the unintended life, doing well financially making more money than a young guy should be making at that point, not having to do as much work for it, but nothing that spoke to my soul, nothing that touched me. There was no depth there. Mm -hmm. uh, well, when that happens, Carl Jung points out, you know, the psyche has a tendency to try to get your attention, you know, to let you know you are off track, which I think works us into the hero's journey eventually there. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, eventually the business went away. Frankly, I ran a large share of it on my nose. You know, it got involved, uh, abused cocaine. Oddly enough, once the business went away, it's like my psyche had decided, well, problem solved, because it didn't continue to be a problem. Mm -hmm. I think it was Robin Williams who said, cocaine is God's way of saying you're making way too much money. <laughs> that problem was solved, but I still didn't get the message. Mm -hmm. You know, I was still trying to do the business, trying to fit in to society's ideas. It didn't occur to me that I should go back, find out what was important to me, and follow that. And even though at this time I'd read Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, you know, as this had been occurring to me, again, to me that was kind of an academic work. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me that mythology really applied to life today. So then the next thing that happened, and this is where I think I have a little bit in common, or a lot in common, with a number of your guests, because they think, frankly, we're all, whether or not we're aware of it, we're on this path. Uh, I developed grave disease, a hyperthyroid condition that I had apparently for a couple of years. Uh, it became worse and worse. I was probably about the size I am now originally, and I dropped 100 pounds and was eating six meals a day because what Graves' disease does, it 
increases your metabolism, and in fact, your thyroid regulates every met metabolic system in your body. So there would be times, for example, I'd be lying at rest at night in my bed, and my heart would jump up to 200 beats a minute. You know, just incredible drum solos going on in there for 10 minutes or so at a time, leaving me totally winded. I, I couldn't have, you know, here I've got a full glass of soda of some sort, I couldn't have more than a quarter glass of my hands because my hands would be shaking so much. A palsy shake, you know, mm -hmm. spilling stuff. A few minutes out in the winter sunshine would leave me with symptoms of sunstroke. And I had no idea what was going on because, you know, mm -hmm. part of the trajectory over this period, as work went away, as insurance went away and so on, I ended up on what might be called the public option of the time. I didn't have any health care. And I thought, how could a fat boy losing weight be a bad thing? Mm -hmm. So, you know, these several different things were going on there. Uh, you know, the, the body gets flooded with hormones. Uh, mentition is extremely fast, so I could absorb information. I could think at an incredible rate, did a lot of reading, but putting it into speech was somewhat difficult. And there are emotional issues that come up with that. I, mm -hmm. I had run, you know, as I mentioned, for assembly and for Congress years previously, but now just in line at a fast food place, you know, paying for food, I had trouble figuring out the change. There was just so much going on up here, I would practically be reduced to tears. Mm -hmm. Should have been a sign something wasn't right. But even then, it, it wasn't until one day, you know, I, I had this ritual of going down to a local pizza parlor on Sunday mornings, taking the Sunday San Francisco Chronicle Examiner, you know, very newspaper, reading through it, reading the date book sections, all the in-depth articles, the book reviews, you know, and order a pizza, eat a few slices, have some soda, box the rest up, come home, you know, have some leftovers during the week. And I remember it been some time since I had participated in that personal ritual. One Sunday, I thought that's what I'm going to do, went down to the pizza parlor, ordered an extra-large pizza, a huge pitcher of soda, scarfed the whole thing up. You know, then on the walk home, which was about eight blocks away, I detoured three blocks out of my way, stopped at a jack-in-the-box, had a uh, ultimate cheeseburger, jumbo fry, strawberry shake, and an apple turnover without... <laughs> stopping and using any facilities along the way. And I realized, this is not good. Where is that food going? Eventually, I ended up in ER. You know, I was a medically indigent adult, so I was at the mercy of the public health system, and I was given you know, the choice at the time, I believe there have been a lot of advances in treating Graves' disease. Since then, George and Barbara Bush both had it in the White House. No one actually knows quite what triggers it, but stress is considered to be part of it. Mm -hmm. you know, I certainly was under a lot of stress, personally, emotionally, plus physically. I'd put myself through some stress with, you know, the, the dabbling in powders, which was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people who chain smoke, they have a much higher incident of Graves' disease. And oddly enough, it's more common among women than males. 
but you know narrowing it down to a specific cause is somewhat difficult mm-hmm. <coughs> pardon me but I ended up in emergency they determined that's what I had after taking a lot of tests and one of the problems with Graves' disease is if you don't get it treated, eventually your body goes into something called thyroid storm, where you have about four minutes to live. Every metabolic system in your body goes into the red zone. Perspiration, respiration, heart, you know, blood pressure, everything goes through the roof. You know, and you're going to die unless you happen to be in ER when that happens. And if doctors happen to know what it is, because otherwise they see someone like that, they're going to assume this is someone who's having some sort of drug overdose. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what my family was thinking was going on based on my history, on my past, the rapid weight loss. So family Mm -hmm. had withdrawn from me, friends. Now, I didn't realize at the time a lot of my old support group, a lot of the things that allowed me to just coast along through life were being stripped away, which is part of the Mm -hmm. call, if you will, Mm -hmm. especially for those of us refusing the call to go (laughs) on the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was just not in a good space. And the doctors pointed out then the remedy for it was either radiation you drink sodium iodine, well, not radiation surgery. You yank the thyroid out. And then you're on 18 different hormones and medications every day for the rest of your life trying to regulate your body close to normal. Mm-hmm. Or you drink sodium iodine, you radiate it. You try to destroy, the idea is 90 95% of the thyroid, and what's left might regulate the body close to normal. But even then... There, you know, they set me up with a few people who'd had both procedures done, and you know, even people who'd had the radiation, they weren't what I call normal. They were, and I would have been very dependent on the medically indigent adult system. Would have been stuck on that. Would have, mm-hmm. you know, I, I couldn't absorb that in my mind. And I was not maybe making the best choices either mm-hmm. at that point in life because the you know things were moving too fast to properly mm-hmm. weigh things. So I decided that I would just accept the fact that in a few weeks I would be dead. And I thought I needed to meditate on that. So I had enough money to check into a Best Western across the street from our local library. Beautiful library, you know, big portico, tall columns, you know, and so on. And I figured I would just check in here. I had been living in a garage apartment, converted, but I figured this would be much more conducive to meditating on the fact that I was going to die. I had spent Sometime they'd been involved, sitting zazen, you know, was drawn to Buddhism and so on. But I found in that motel room, one of the drawbacks of great disease is you just cannot sit still. And you can't hold a thought in your head or anything. So I realized I need a meditation aid. Having been to a lot of Grateful Dead concerts, you know, I thought, well, that takes a specific particular form a psychedelic would have been a wonderful thing but i was in a central valley town modesto california which is where i am right now heart of the central valley the red state part of california 
not exactly a place where the Grateful Dead come and hang out or other hippies and so on. So where am I going to find someone who asks something like that? And I walked out onto the balcony, you know, the hallway really, uh, open hallway of, of the motel, second story there, looked across the street at the library, and there, with a guitar case open, juggling those three sticks that hippies do, was someone who, this guy who had long dark hair, jester's hat, a great big kind of peasant blouse, puffy shirt, he was wearing a hippie skirt, gypsy skirt of some sort. Wow, you know, it's like an answer to prayer. He at least would know where something like that was. So I went across the street, introduced myself, let him know what I was looking for. And he looked at me probably thinking a little strange, too, because I was, you know, I had that wiry look about me. So it turned out, though, his name was Coyote. I'd read Joseph Campbell, and I know Joe says you know, these things aren't necessarily literal, but I didn't quite put together the fact that, you know, okay, Jester's hat, definitely trickster, named Coyote, looking for a magic elixir. You know, that seems like one of the major steps of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. occurred to me at that point. But he ended up heading back over to the motel room with me, talking for a bit, went away, came back with a sheet of LSD of, uh, you know, 100 hits. And I figured, I'm going to die, I could take a couple of these hits, which, uh, I don't know what, if any, experience you may have had with psychedelics. More people have had experience today than not. Mm -hmm. But Or no, that's, that's not quite true. More people have had experience today than they did 30 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, and it's, now we're at least researching the subject again. But... You know, at the time, I thought this would be what I need to settle myself. I have plenty of friends who would appreciate the rest. That will work itself out. So I thought I'd take a mega dose. I tore off two or three hits, stuffed them into my mouth. And with the Graves' disease, they started perhaps metabolizing almost instantly. Normally, there's a lag of a half hour to 45 minutes before any teacher plant, ayahuasca, or psychedelics or anything, you know, comes online, so to speak. You have to digest it, and you go through a process of wondering, will this happen or won't this happen? I was impressed because this was working right away and I knew this would be a powerful potent experience. I thought maybe I'll take a few more hits Coyote Fred, as his name was when he wore the hippie skirt when he was wearing pants he said his name was Coyote Frank he had left and oddly enough he's the first member of the Rainbow family I ever met, little tangent here, <laughs> it's kind of a group of, I'd heard about it on the edges of the Grateful Dead scene Kind of a precursor to Burning Man in some ways. Think of it as an acoustic Burning Man. Mm -hmm. 20,000 aging hippies, counterculture types, you know, a hippie brigadoon that builds a city in the woods, a different national forest every year for a month or two over the summer where everything is free. You know, it sounded very imaginary to me, very fictional at the time. And I'd always wanted to meet someone involved with this. Well, this was my first contact with someone like that, which was intriguing. We might circle back to that later. <laughs> but he had left. I was going to eat a few more hits of LSD, and I ended up 
my hand had different ideas, or my psyche did. I stuffed the entire hundred hits, all that was left of it, into my mouth, which, if it was fairly decent, low surgic acid diethylamide, and from my experience, it certainly was, that was probably enough to turn on 200 to 250 people for 8 to 12 hours at a time. Yeah, that's what I Definitely, wow. I tripped for the entire three days I was there in that room. The next 12 hours, I was just kind of in fetal position on the bed. You know, the Steve ceased to exist. It was just kind of Brahma breathing in, breathing out, you know, just complete dissolution of ego. And by the time I came back enough that I could open a book and the letters and words didn't slide off the page onto the floor, I spent the next two days rereading The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Totally different book this time around, very much so, which also is intriguing because Joe mentioned in several of the interviews I'm working with now, in fact, that... Um, he noticed, or rather his publisher noticed, and brought to his attention that his royalties for Hero with a Thousand Faces in the 60s jumped up by a factor of 10. Suddenly 10 times as much money was coming in because, you know, the hippies and others using psychedelics uh, were using Hero with a Thousand Faces as a triptych for the psychedelic experience. And though Joseph Campbell himself never indulged in psychedelics, he said he preferred his initiations in the pages of books. <coughs> Pardon me there. I have a tendency to talk on and on and deliver monologues, so stop me when <laughs> No, this is all interesting. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. sometimes my... my I'll wonder why I'm getting hoarse and realize I've been talking nonstop. <laughs> but anyhow, the um, uh, he once mentioned to Sam Keen when asked about psychedelics that that was very important and powerful in the 1960s, the 50s and 60s, because people experienced that the archetypes, the archetypes of the clock of unconscious were real, as real as furniture and, you know, trees and everything else, except this is an interior world inside of us that we descend into. You know, you can think of it as the realm of the pure or raw imagination. In Myths to Live By, his essay on schizophrenia, which is fascinating there, he discusses how um, those who take LSD, for example, or psychedelics, you know, a lot of people are kind of adrift doing that in the 60s because you're swimming in the same ocean as a mystic or a shaman who goes in intentionally, but you don't really have any guide there. So, you know, there's sometimes the tendency to crack up. But the myths of all time are our guides, and people have been doing this for thousands upon thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you know Central America, South America, you know that, as Joe used to say, that was a drug culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything imaginable, all religion was based on it. The ancient mystery rites of Eleusis in Greece and uh, the mystery rites of Dionysus mm -hmm. and Isis and so on. It appears, and some scholars believe, along with some botanists, that 
especially Eleusis, may have been midwifed by mm-hmm. a barley beverage that everybody shared that had some ergot in it, you know, that there was a way of distilling it that gave them kind mm-hmm. of a similar experience. And you huh. even notice, um, especially in Indian, in Hindu mythology, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, use of teacher plants in particular, and even the Buddha is fed on hemp seeds, mm-hmm. you know, during his time of, you know, mm-hmm. while he's seeking enlightenment there. So the, that all is interesting. I didn't know this at the time, but after rereading Hero with a Thousand Faces, mm-hmm. I realized where I was, and that was mired in the wasteland, living the unintentional life. And mm-hmm. so I determined during the brief time I had left that, you know, I would try to find and follow my bliss you know during i didn't know if that was going to be days or weeks or months or whatever but i thought i'm going to put myself on that path how old were you how old were you then i I was in my i was right on the edge of in my 30s right on the edge of 30 Mm -hmm. and so late 20s early 30s for some reason it's a little bit hazy i have it all (laughs) down in journals but yeah, it, it melds together just a little bit. So um, uh, I spent most of the next decade on the road, thumbing my way around the United States, visiting ashrams, uh, bohemian communities, a good place. Oh, it took me a couple months, by the way, to realize that all my symptoms had evaporated. And I... I Kids, don't try this at home. I don't want to recommend lysergic acid diethylamide as a cure for Graves' disease. The way I tell myself now, looking back on it, I think I was stuck and my psyche was trying to get my attention, pretty much breaking down the door. Mm-hmm. And that broke down the door. You know, I mentioned earlier, it appears stress has a lot to do with the development of Graves' disease. And though it was something very real, you know, perhaps it was also psychosomatic in that mm-hmm. sense for me. Mm-hmm. Because once I, and of course at the time, I mean, it took a year or two for my thought patterns to change too. So I didn't exactly, my family thought I was going through with the radiation. And it wasn't until a few years later they found out that I hadn't. And and obviously today I'm not suffering from Graves' disease. I don't seem to be wasting away. Um, Wouldn't mind just a little of that back. Not not really. It it was a hellacious period. Uh But it was really hellacious, not because of the condition, but because of how I was living my life. So, to to follow my bliss, I had to find out what my bliss was. And so, it became a Walt Whitman, Jack Kerouac, Ken Kesey, you know, go out on the road and find myself experience. I would hitchhike into, in fact, when I'd come to a new community, a new city, I would aim for the nearest university or college campus because that's someone who was a little bit scruffy looking, somewhat skinny, long hair, carrying backpacks, kind of blended in because everybody looked that way then. And in fact, university libraries were a good place to catch a nap on the couch, you know, take 
a little bird bath, you know, get used to my surroundings, find out what was going on, and read, 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 read. I read Jung's Collective Works. I read Hillman, read everything available of Joseph Campbell at the time, mm-hmm. you know, nurturing, feeding the mind, and as I say, visiting ashrams and intentional communities and so on everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. And it's not like every day you're hitchhiking. <laughs> it only takes about three to maybe five days if you're intentional about it to get anywhere in the United States by thumb, mm-hmm. uh, especially since a lot of the other people traveling that way, they're not getting up till noon or so, not horribly <laughs> motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it you know I would find myself going into a place I'd go to Taos, New Mexico, and I'd hang out there for a couple of months or stay up in Yosemite for a couple of months or up and I uh, kept going back up to the Northwest, to Portland, Seattle, and so on, and mm-hmm. visiting a lot of people, sofa surfing my way across the United States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of karma yoga involved. I found if I, you know, if I did a tarot reading for someone here, you know, a, a wonderful meal would open up there, or do some dream work for someone here, and suddenly I'd be house sitting for a month or two, and then in an amazing space. So that was a period where I definitely was on the journey, on the road. You know, and eventually the time came to drop back in. I would usually come back to Modesto, my hometown, every winter because, you know, magical thinking or not, it kind of sucks to be hitchhiking during a blizzard. So (laughs) California is a good place to be. Another weird place to be hitchhiking would be deserts out in the Mojave. But it's amazing, the people that will pick you up there that won't pick you up somewhere else because they know if they don't pick you up, you are going to die. Mm -hmm. So So you were hitchhiking, you weren't driving, is that... No, no, okay. I had no income. I would come back to town and I would sell flowers for some friends uh-huh. around uh, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, then hit the road, get out, and go to wherever, in my mind, wherever I was needed at the time. Mm-hmm. And I hit my share of Grateful Dead concerts. I started getting involved with the Rainbow Family, which was actually very fascinating. A lot of environmental activists there, a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, we'd have yoga meadows set up. It was a mansion of myth, a mansion of ritual. I met Australian Aborigines and Native American shaman, uh, Hindu gurus, amazing people. But again, there comes the time mm-hmm. when to drop back in. Mm-hmm. So I, my time in Modesto, when I would come back, would stretch longer and longer. I ran into an old friend uh, who is my wife today, Destiny. Yeah, and so we started connecting. I started staying with her. And uh, there's always a good woman behind every plot twist in a story. <laughs> in some ways, you know, did just not having an income didn't make sense. So I started substitute teaching. And I realized I had a gift for teaching at the time, for which I didn't have when I had first dabbled in that years mm-hmm. before. Uh, now, compassion had developed and a sense that I needed to reach these kids. And so in a sense, I had an opportunity by subbing all throughout the county uh, to interview a number of school districts. Uh, that's how I looked on it. You know, where was a place that I wanted to work if I wanted to work full time? I was still heading out on the road, 
you know, I, I would sub starting late October, November as the weather was turning, and then leave early to mid-spring. But my time was stretching longer and longer, and I eventually uh, was applied for and was hired in a place that I taught regularly. And even though my degree is in history, I found myself teaching English and literature, and occasionally when I couldn't get out of it or the principal was a little bit irritated with me, a section or two of algebra, uh, which was not the dessert class for me. The dessert class was literature, because that's all about story, and that's what Joe's talking about mm-hmm. in The Hero's Journey, and it's a my idea when it came to junior high students, they're at that stage of initiation, puberty, you know, 11, 12, 13, right in there. So things are changing. Mm-hmm. The child that they were is dying. The adult hasn't been fully born. And our role as teachers, in my mind, was to help turn them into human beings. Yeah, now they, they're going to pick up the parts of speech and fractions and so on if I'm doing my job properly. You know, that will come through, but it's really introducing them to, in my mind, the wisdom stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one sense, you know, though I joke about being a uh, Hindu, Taoist, Buddhist, Gnostic, libertarian, Wiccan, deadhead, my religion is literature. Yeah, and that's where, you know, we've been telling stories. Humans do that. That's where the hero's journey comes from. Uh-huh. And it's a motif that keeps coming up over and over. And we do this. We tell these stories in literature because they are our stories. Right. And they give us clues as to how to live, live life. Mm-hmm. So that was wonderful with students. And I had to teach them English so they'd have the tools to process that, to write about it, and so on. But Mm it was a fun time for a number of years until it wasn't. Uh, (laughs) Teaching, it's wonder, it's the, it's not the best paid position in the world, but also, you know, by 2000, 2001, and there, in fact, all throughout the first decade of this millennium, teachers were kind of the bad guys. You know, children are getting left behind. We need to do something to fix that. It's got to be the teacher's fault, which was fascinating. Because my students uh, came, half of them kind of came from a country club setting. But the other half in the neighborhoods around the school that were owned essentially, you know, condos that had fallen into disrepair, owned by slumlords in the Bay Area who really didn't put anything into them. Uh, so there was all sorts of gang activity, methamphetamine, uh, students of mine, parents were getting arrested. Uh, one of our students, 11 years old, was shot in the back during a drug raid on his parents' house that didn't find any drugs, but, you know, it's hard to tell in the hallway when someone's going to the bathroom if they're an adult or not. I had another, another one of my students' older brother, and by older, just two or three years, was shot in the face in a drive-by shooting. We had to be careful what shoelaces children were wearing, what color they were, because it's the wrong gang affiliation. One, uh, well, a couple of my students, their parents shared a condo, two families, you know, a condo that was in disrepair that had no heat, no electricity, so the way they heated the house was with a barbecue in the living room. Mm. 
tragic consequences ensued. The house burned down. One of the parents was killed. You know, so so that was the the setting where I was coming from, and it's somewhat difficult. You know, now a lot of that had changed by the time I resigned, but at the time, um, it's it's difficult for Johnny to think about reading or to think about trinomial binomial expressions and algebra when you the only meal you're going to have is the free meal you get that day at school you know for breakfast uh, or you know you, you just don't know what's happening your parents are strung out on something they had a lot of other things going on so but teachers were blamed for that and I can understand that you know we, we somehow can't fully bring them along the other thing that kind of drained my soul bureaucracy has a tendency to crush it there was a lot of make work a lot of this program the Institute it you knew even though you had to jump through the hoops it didn't really matter because a year and a half two years later that program would go away and a new thing was instituted. So part of the idea of being a successful teacher for me was doing the dance so that it looked like the hoops were being jumped through, but actually communicating with the students so that they were learning and uh, not teaching to the test while at the same time still having to teach to the test. So eventually, after 9-11, I decided this is it. I'm going to drop out and, you know, not drop out the way I did originally, but I thought, you know, I listened to Joseph Campbell, who said, you follow your bliss and doors will open where you would not have thought there'd be doors. But that means you sometimes have to take a leap of faith. So, you know, I resigned and thought I'm going to pursue, you know, the creative imagination, wanted to write, wanted to, you know, work somewhat in the field of myth, uh, and that's what I was doing, a, a lot of writing, but also, during the time that I'd been teaching uh, on Yahoo, yahoo.com, uh, I stumbled across the Joseph Campbell Mythology Group on Yahoo, which, you know, was, was really kind of a grassroots effort, you know, a couple hundred people talking about myth. And I thought, this is wonderful. You know, that to me was a leisure time activity, but I found myself doing it more and more. I became one of the moderators of that group. Eventually, I became a co-owner of that group and a driving force behind it. And then one day, about a year after I had uh, stepped out of the classroom for good, well, not quite for good. I, I still, in fact, substitute teach on occasion for old friends and colleagues because I do work for a nonprofit organization, and we put the non in nonprofit. So, you know, it does help keep body and soul together. So I'll do that a few days a month. And I was doing that then. But our group became an, an editor's pick on Yahoo, and suddenly we had a couple thousand people come through the door overnight. We'd been a group of some 600 people having deep, profound conversations, and then the floodgates opened, and suddenly we had all sorts of people arguing with all sorts of other people about all sorts of silly things, 
lot of flame wars erupted uh, because they assumed whoever they were arguing with was a member of the group when that person had gotten there about half an hour before. And so lots of disorder, lots of chaos. Uh, and that was the time at which we came to the attention of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which at the time... Bob Walter, of course, uh, has been the one and only executive director. Well, no, not the one and only. Gene Erdman was the president of the foundation and chairman of the board in the early days. Uh, but then she ceded that to Bob as she got up there in years. And in fact, today she's 102 years old and still going strong. I think mm -hmm. her... 103rd, she could be 101. Um, her birthday will be on February 20th. Dancer's body, you know, amazing health. But, you know, the vicissitudes of age creep in there. So you're not going to be as good with a balance sheet, you know, and all the other day-to-day -day activities of running a foundation beyond a particular age. So Bob Walter, David Cudler, who has edited most of uh, the works that have come out under Joe's name in the last decade and a half, they both were having in-depth conversations about, gee, should we shut this group down because they're using Joe's name? You know, and it's just this cluster, well, I won't finish the thought, but it, it was a, a <laughs> not a good thing. Uh -huh. you know, look at this cacophony of, of chaos. Uh, so Bob would visit the group off, and he would lurk there, see what was going on, and he noticed there were a couple of us restoring order, and it did take, you know, about a month to return it to a productive salon-like setting um, where people could have a safe discussion without being attacked, where people could agree to disagree and so on. And so he noticed while this was happening, my online name at the time was Bodhi Bliss, and it still kind of is, that's my Skype name, which I probably didn't want to say over Skype, come to think of it, but it might get some... We can edit that out if you want. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay. Spelling it would be the tricky part. Yeah. But anyhow, um, he noticed this person, I would write long, lengthy posts, and Yahoo had kind of a limit of, you know, several hundred words. And so this was it would before be a Facebook, right? This was before Facebook? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, this this was when Mark Zuckerberg was still in his dorm room at the time. So this was a place where people could go online and chat. Now, the Joseph Campbell Foundation also had conversations of a higher order, which were amazing conversations that over time I got involved in. And uh, really wonderful, and I, I wish we could still have that structure today, because there were literally hundreds of conversations going on in multiple categories and so on, very well moderated. But at the time, Yahoo was as accessible, you know, as anything else at the time. You know, Facebook eventually trumped that. So people would come and discuss Joe there, and... Bob started collecting things I'd written in a file, had an idea, reached out to me, and I thought, gee, get a stipend of a couple hundred bucks a month for writing essays? That, that to me, sounds wonderful. You know, so that's what I did, and I created the Practical Campbell series 
of essays on everything from ritual regicide to the mythology of archetypes or the mythology of breath, but trying to tie back some of the more esoteric things, you know, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung on dreams and so on, into practical life, which is what attracts me about what you do, as a matter of fact. So, you know, that that was what I considered my primary mission at the time, but that expanded, you know, by 2006, Bob had suggested I do the interview book, which we're titling In His Own Words. My working title for a long time was Speaking of Myth, but I think we've settled on that in his own words, and uh, there'll be more to that. But uh, that's when some of the earliest transcripts and interviews were handed over to me. So the writing aspect, I thought, was what I was going to be doing. But, you know, it, it's a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of tasks. Uh, at the time, more tasks than there were people, volunteers to handle, especially people who were fairly grounded in Joseph Campbell's work. So eventually I became part of the team that was steering the foundation, part of the leadership team uh, for a number of years. Community fell under my umbrella. You know, I would organize and co- coordinate and co-chair mm-hmm. uh, and uh, suddenly words fail me. Oh, conferences and mm-hmm. so on. The study of myth conference, which we had hundreds of people and something like 80 different presentations at over a period of three days on the Pacifica campus. Mm-hmm. You know, I would speak to groups like the Friends of Young Society and so on, you know, work on educational outreaches and all sorts of being pulled in multiple directions. The last few years, you know, as book after book after book in uh, Joe's Postumata was being published, it became clear I'm just not getting around to the interview book. So a lot of those have been lifted, and then the last couple years also, I found found myself focused on my mother, who was declining. In fact, I think our first connection was the week she died this summer, at the age of 96. So, yeah, that took a lot of time and energy, too. So, actually, it was nice not to be so much in the loop in the day-to-day activities. Mm -hmm. And we have a good, strong activist board now with the foundation, and we're trying to keep people in swim lanes Mm -hmm. because we're, we're making a transition for what will be the role of the foundation going forward once mm-hmm. all Joe's work is published, once everything is archived. And yeah. that is my simple answer to your question about a few highlights of my life that brought me to this point. No, I think that's perfect because it's coming in at exactly an hour and I feel like I just got your whole hero's journey. But then I also want to pick your brain because you're such an expert on Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. So maybe in the next part of this this conversation, we can you can just share your knowledge about uh, who is Joseph Campbell, what is the hero's journey, and how can we apply that to our lives? Do you want to tell me a little bit about what, what should the average person who maybe has never heard of Joseph Campbell, what should they know about him? Um... Uh... Let me see. What most people who haven't heard of Joseph Campbell 
or might have heard about him, what sticks in their mind is that he's the mythologist on whose work George Lucas based Star Wars, which doesn't quite tell the, the full story. Expanding from that, in brief, and I think I can maybe be a little briefer with Joe's story than my own, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, he was born in 1904 in the New York State, um, spent a few years in New Rochelle when he was five or six years old. Uh, his father took Joe and his brother Charlie, or maybe it was just Joe, to see Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in Madison Square Gardens. And that turned this little boy onto the American Indian. Native Americans became a passion of his. So as he was growing up, he studied, you know, like a lot of little boys do, and little girls now too. You know, he, he studied everything he could find out about the Indians, you know, field lore, you know, their, their stories, their mythology definitely came into it. The family was a Catholic family, so he was also raised in the church. And by his teenage years, he was starting to notice there's some similarities between the stories he's reading uh, about Native American Indians. And he wasn't just reading, you know, by the time he got to be 12, 13, 14, 15, he wasn't just reading you know, little children's books anymore. He was admitted into the adult stacks, you know, at the library in New Rochelle. He visited the New York Public Library a lot, especially once the family moved to New York City. And he started reading material published by ethnographers and sociologists and historians with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, a lot of government publications, a lot of Fraser Boas' work and other people who were uh, uh, Lewis Morgan, people very active in the field at the turn of the century. So he really dived into it and started noticing that similarity with Catholicism. You know, that kind of got filed away a little bit, uh, but he, he did continue with that enthusiasm. His father, uh, was a hosiery salesman. He sold socks for a living, which was a big thing then when everybody wore suits, when you can't even see in pictures at the turn of the century, the 19th to 20th century, people at the beach. You know, the men have those three-piece suits on and ties, and women are weighted down with petticoats galore and so on. So, you know, that helped provide a decent living for the family. And the more his father got into creating his own business, uh, they would sometimes take trips over to Europe. Well, in those days, you didn't fly. You took a boat over. So early on, Joe was introduced to other cultures. Um, and that started a series of very interesting coincidences. I, I don't know if you ever saw the Woody Allen movie Zelig. Uh, many years ago, Zelig was a character who was kind of like everywhere in history something important happened. He was there, except he wasn't noticed. Well, Joe was noticed, but he met fascinating people all throughout his life. Uh, when he was 19, I believe, on a cruise to Europe, he met Krishnamurti, who at the time was about the same age and was the Messiah, the Maitreya 
of the theosophist, the Theosophical Society. You know, so this was a young person, a Hindu who'd been raised to study spirituality, who'd been very deeply trained, and he and Joe became good friends, which was important later on. Uh, same thing, one of Joe's first girlfriends was Adele Davis, who, you know, that turned my mom around about Joseph Campbell. She, in the 50s and 60s, raised us on, Adele Davis was someone who was very much into healthy living, organic food, and so on, before it was a thing. Uh, so, you know, a writer who eventually became relatively well-known at some point in time, and all sorts of other people like this. Joe attended college. He started out at Dartmouth, thought there was too much partying going on, which tells you something about him. He very much, very bright individual, uh, also very outgoing. Uh, he transferred to Columbia because he could live at home. The family was living in New York City at the time, and he could be on the track team. He also, at the time, was a, a jazz musician. He played with a jazz band, which started off with some friends on campus, but eventually they played a lot of venues in New York, including, I believe, at one point, the Carlton Ritz, and he was able to bank you know, his bank book would show a balance of $3,000, which in the early 1920s was a lot for a young man to have in his account. There, there seems to be a presumption today people have that Joe was rich all his life. Not really, not at all, as a matter of fact. You know, the, this money, though, that he earned playing in jazz concerts helped get him through school and helped his family once the Depression hit. He also ran track. He, at one point, was on an Olympic track, which I've, in terms of a direction, an Olympic trajectory, which I've learned in more detail as I go deeper into the interviews. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot going on in school, but eventually he started being drawn to Arthurian literature. And that's what uh, his master's thesis was on. He started studying that. He decided to drop music and eventually drop track to focus on studies. And so in the mid-1920s, he was sent to Europe after he had his master's on a Proudfit scholarship, which paid his expenses for a year in Europe. And while over there, uh, as, he, as he phrases it, the whole world opened up because he got to Paris and discovered modern art. I mean, Picasso was there, Clay was hanging out, all sorts of amazing people, amazing shows going on. He discovered the work of James Joyce. Um, and Sylvia Beach's bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, Sylvia Beach was the publisher of James Joyce, and Joe, when he first picked up Ulysses, was, which was kind of a risque thing then, you know, and read it, he didn't know what to make of it, so indignantly went down to the bookstore to ask her, how do you read this? And she told him how, and sold him a whole pile of books that really spoke to him about you know, basically other cultures, mythology, all sorts of things that Joyce, you know, had brought into his work. So while Joyce was writing rough drafts of Finnegan's Wake, 
and publishing those early efforts in a little avant-garde magazine called Transitions in Paris. Joe was reading that. Yeah, and he was beginning to realize that what he was studying, which was you know, the development of Provençal, you know, a, a language the troubadours used, which was very specialized and very narrow, he really wasn't learning anything about life. And he also found that a lot of the scholars he was interested in were in German. So he wrote to Columbia, they gave him a one-year extension on his fellowship, and so he headed over to Heidelberg, attended the university there, while learning German, he was reading Carl Jung's works, which is interesting because I, I speak German, but I sometimes have trouble with Carl Jung in English. It's very deep, very profound, but this was kind of his primer. And so those three things in particular, you know, the world of modern art, uh, James Joyce, which just blew his mind because Joyce came from the same Catholic background and was dealing with a lot of the same issues. And then, um, you know, Joe spending more time with artists in Paris. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the studio of Antoine Bordel, who was a student of and a master sculptor in the tradition of Rodin. And he had kind of a little salon in his studio while he would work that Krishnamurti and other people, you know, other thinkers and famous folks would show up in. So Joe became part of that scene. And then, you know, discovering the work of Jung and of Freud, those blew his mind. He knew he couldn't fit back in that little PhD box that he was in. Uh, so he headed back to Columbia at the end of the year to ask them to expand what he was working on. He wanted a broader subject related to myth, related to psychology, related to all these amazing areas of interest opening up out to him. And Columbia said, no, that's not the way scholarship works. You need to be very narrow-minded. <laughs> so Joe said, well, that's it. I'm not going to be a professor. And he never was. That's something important that a lot of people don't realize. Joe did not have a PhD. He had a master's degree. He was a professor in terms of profession. He taught literature for some 40-something, for decades at Sarah Lawrence. But uh, he didn't have a PhD. He dropped out of the doctoral program. And this all happened. He returned to the United States days before Black Friday, before the stock market crashed. So everybody was wiped out. His family was wiped out. You know, the, the um, uh, Joe pretty much retired to the Woodstock area and spent five years reading, living on very little. You know, the, uh, you know, a house sitting for some people. This sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Very much so. You know, he kept a dollar hidden away in a drawer, knowing if he had that dollar that he wouldn't starve. But, uh, you know, he and his sister lived together for a while, rented a place, and you could rent little tiny bungalows for, you know, just a few dollars, you know, sometimes $25 a year. His last year in Woodstock, he house sat for a family where his primary job, besides taking care of their home, was taking care of their Doberman, which is a beautiful jo dog, 
I think named Max that uh, he fell in love with, had a lot of good things to say about that companion. In between, somewhere during that five years, he went looking for work. He bought a Model A and drove out to California, but he kind of went the long way. He went by Tulane University in uh, New Orleans, where he knew some people. He was considering maybe going into a program and becoming an anthropologist, and Tulane was a good place to do that. A lot of work with the Mayans and the Aztecs opening up right there. He kept on coming out. He spent a uh, few months in Los Angeles where he fell in with a Russian community. He learned Russian, learned to play the balalaika, and uh, I mean, Joe was languages were his thing. If, if you visit his library, which is on the grounds of the Pacifica Graduate Institute today, uh, near Santa Barbara in Carpinteria, which is basically, you know, kind of a suburb, you know, right, right part of the Santa Barbara area. <clears throat> Pardon me. And you go through the shelves, it's now the Joseph Campbell and Maria Gambutis Library, and you pull out one of his books, and you open it in French, you know, a, a book in French, his margin notes are in French. You pull a book out in German, his margin notes wow. are in German. <laughs> pull out a book in Sanskrit, his margin notes are in Sanskrit. So learning Russian was no big deal to him, apparently, at the time. Again, I'm still struggling with English, <laughs> even though I teach it on occasion. <laughs> so uh, he, he spent some time there. Then he wanted to go up and visit his friend Adele Davis, who was living in Berkeley at the time. So he thought he'd do that, went up to see her, uh, spent a few weeks there. He even applied for a job. He, he sent 70 letters and applications to different colleges around the United States different schools and institutions. So it's not like he was being a total bum, but there was just no work for anybody. And then he went across the Bay to San Francisco and applied for a job with Hearst Newspapers. And Hearst turned him down. You know, he was a nice, bright young man, but they didn't really like the scholar type, uh, which is good because Cho's opinion of journalists later on in life, uh, not that he disliked journalism, mm -hmm. but you know, his idea was more take a look at something deeper, not necessarily the first draft of history. So then he headed down from Berkeley to visit a friend that he'd met in Hawaii when he was running track, he and Jackson Schultz, who you may or may not remember if you ever saw Chariots of Fire, was one of the principal players mm -hmm. running to Vangelis on the beach there. Mm -hmm. He was Joe's roommate at a number of track events and part of his cohort and so on, uh, he had talked Joe into visiting Hawaii uh, at one point. So, you know, some people that he met there, one girl that he knew was living in San Jose with her mother, he went down to visit her, perhaps thinking maybe, you know, something interesting would happen, but she was involved with someone, but said, you know who you should meet? My sister. And Joe had met his sister. She's married to this writer guy uh, in the Carmel area. So, you know, they went down and 
John and Carol Steinbeck became really good friends of Joe. You know, they were about the same age. Steinbeck was a couple years later, and there was this whole bohemian artistic community there of people who had no money. John Steinbeck was not famous yet. He was writing. Joe was trying to be a writer. Uh, in fact, he took a stab at a novel or two during the time that he was there. Uh, and another good friend of theirs was Ed Ricketts, um, who... I think American Biological Laboratories, I think is the name of the laboratory he created, which was just in a beat-up ramshackle old cannery building on Cannery Row in the Carmel-Monterey area there. Uh, Ed Ricketts became Doc in a number of Steinbeck's novels, Cannery Row, he's in Tortilla Flats, and uh, together, in fact, they, they wrote a book there, Ricketts became more important to Joe's life than Steinbeck. They became very, very tight friends. And then Joe, you know, later, once summer came around in 1932, they headed up, he joined Ricketts on a boat called the Grampus, kind of a beat-up converted tugboat that went up on a collecting expedition because the way Ricketts made his money was collecting specimens that high school laboratories and college laboratories would use on their slides when students were looking at microscopes. So they would collect specimens. They had an order for something like 60,000 type of this little pink worm that grows in tidal pools. And tidal pools was Ricketts' specialty. So they went up to Sitka, Alaska, along with a couple people on the trip, including this one girl, Xenia, who was only 17, who later married John Cage. And John Cage and Xenia, when they moved to New York, John Cage, the composer, they, in fact, crashed for some months with Joe and his wife, Jean uh, Erdman, uh, in a little tiny cramped apartment, not much larger than this kind of bedroom office I have here, uh, which is where Joe and Jean lived four decades in New York City. So, again, that being in the right place at the right time, John Steinbeck, Ed Ricketts, and so on, he then returned to the Woodstock era, area. He did teach at a, a prep school, the, his old prep school, for boys for about a year, the junior high level, but realized that was not for him. I can identify. It can't be difficult. So he went back on the Depression and just kept reading. And in, in those days, it was a little bit different than today, he, uh, he would get books like Schopenhauer's works or books of philosophers. He would order them from a company who would send them to him, and they let him pay after the Depression. So, you know, very incredible kind of buying it on time, if you will, uh, which, and then he had a very strict schedule of writing every day, writing and writing, and eventually, you know, he, uh, someone mentioned his name when Sarah Lawrence was being formed, so he became part of the early faculty at Sarah Lawrence, which uh, in, in, uh, included a number of other luminaries, a number of artists. Sarah Lawrence was somewhat avant-garde. Pardon me, a girls' school. No one was given grades. You had weekly or bi-weekly conferences with teachers. One of 
his co-faculty members, Martha Graham, who had her own ballet company. And in fact, over the course of you know, his first few years there, uh, he met and fell in love with Jean Erdman, who was one of his students, waited until she, she didn't actually graduate. And her junior year at the end of that, Martha Graham offered her a position in her dance company. And her parents weren't sure about that. They convinced her to, you know, take a year out, you know, go on a cruise with them around the world, which they did. But when they came back, the, the flames were kindled with Joe and Jean. They were married. And so he fell into life as a professor at Sarah Lawrence. Eventually, he was teaching literature, but a big component of that was mythology. And that became his primary course. But during his life, he wasn't famous, and they weren't rich. They lived, again, in this cramped apartment. Uh, Joe worked three-quarters time so he could write. And, in fact, they wrote, he wrote on a picnic table that was a wedding gift, black walnut picnic table, so their bedroom became his office. It wasn't a bedroom, and they slept in the living room. Uh, and, in fact, he didn't have a chair. He just sat writing longhand by pencil at this bench and table for the next 35, 40 years. Uh, and that's where his work was created. But what he was interested in, what he was teaching, what he was studying, what he was learning was mythology, his early enthusiasm, which was the Native American tales, you know, that had expanded to Arthurian lore, and then that kept expanding in other areas. And he discovered the work, I mean, of course, Jung in particular, Carl Jung very much deep into myth, uh, and then um, uh Arnold Van Gennep, I think I mentioned that in one of my emails to you, a French ethnographer who in 1909, I believe, wrote a book called Rites of Passage, which looks at, he came up with the term rite of passage, in fact. It looked at initiation rites of young men and young women in primal culture, though there's a difference between those two types of initiation. And, uh, you know, came up with identified from there a structure very similar to the structure of the hero's journey. I think the three parts of that were like separation and then liminality, you know, when you're being initiated, you're torn out of the ordinary world, if you will, forcibly. Then you're put in a place where, you know, you're told tales, monsters are coming to eat you, you know, you've been taken from your mom's skirts and so on. You're very scared. You don't know that all these weird creatures wearing the mask and things, you know, are folks that you know. You, you're made to dance. You're bled. You know, you go through, you might be circumcised. You might be sub-incised, which is even worse, you know, or a tooth knocked out or something. So you're not eating. You have kind of an out-of-bodied, altered-state experience. Yeah, and then... You know, at the moment where you think you're going to die because you hear this bull roar coming through the forest and up the mountain towards you and are told that's a dragon that's getting closer and closer and then stepping out into the clearing is Uncle Charlie. Yeah, and there's this little satori that goes on, this initiation that occurs. But that liminal moment opens the door where you're the most scared you've ever been in your life. Yeah, and it 
it just opens one to an incredible spiritual experience. And then I think embodiment was the third thing that Van Gennep found in that. And you'll find other anthropologists like Victor Turner, same thing, came across the same type of things that Joseph Campbell found in myth in their work in anthropology. Uh, Joe, though, you know, he... He was familiar with Van Gennep, but he also is reading Leo Frobenius, who is a German author about solar heroes, solar mythology, and again, reading Carl Jung. And then for his students, he went through and he would assign them Ovid, Ovid's Metamorphosis or Ovid. Um, I have a little trouble with Latin, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, all the myths there he noticed were fitting that same pattern. You know, so he started developing, you know, recognizing the hero's journey in myth. And it's, you know, that's one of the most important things to take away from Joe's work, the hero's journey. It's not that he invented it or came up with it, but he isolated it. He realized, oh, this is the pattern that these myths fall into. And a common misconception is he felt this is the only kind of myth there was which is not true. Creation myths, for example, a lot of them, there is no hero. It's just, you know, this universe or something is created. When God in the Bible creates the world, you know, he's not being a hero going out and slaying monsters and so on. But in the Bronze Age, Joe discovered that's when solar myths and heroic myths first started coming up, which is when humans first started having a sense of who, who they are. We start finding writings is happening and people are developing names. We're beginning to know who people are. So Joe put all that together in a book that became The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And there's a lot more to his story, but I think that's where yeah. we want to focus on. The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was published in 1949, <coughs> describes this pattern. And I think Joe's genius, which I was slow to pick up on when I read the book, is that this isn't just something that happened in the long ago, or a literary device that we're studying, or something that other cultures did. But this is the story of a human being, the story, if you will, the shape of the human imagination. Uh, there are basically three stages to the hero's journey. A lot of people will discuss that because in Joe's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he talks about, as an example, 17 different things that can happen to you. You know, you hear this call of adventure and to adventure, you know, and you answer that or not. You know, heroes have a tendency to do that. Sometimes they refuse the call, you know, and so on. Different thresholds that you cross. So a lot of people today... Uh, and I will still get email about this, think there has to be 17 steps to the hero's journey. But there are only three steps that are important, and that is separation or departure. You're in one world, your ordinary world, your day-to-day -day world, and something happens that pulls you out of that. That often is that call to adventure. In my case, I didn't get the call to adventure right away. You know, it, it, the phone kept ringing, and I didn't answer it, and didn't answer it, and so on. But eventually, it gets through to you, and then you end up 
in this totally different world where initiation occurs. You go through you know, a series of ordeals, a series of trials, magical aid, magical helpers thing uh, occur, appear, you know, right where you need them, which is hard for people to understand. It's kind of like Coyote Fred in my story, mm-hmm. showing up at just the right time, you know, or or someone who is very much into playing guitar, you know, taking something like that, and they're throwing themselves into it, suddenly, because of the path they're on, they start meeting people who can help open doors for them. Uh, this has developed into a corollary, an adage Joe is known for, follow your bliss. Follow your bliss and doors will open where there wouldn't otherwise have been doors. And I, I want to circle back to that at some point. Maybe in our fifth hour. My wife tells me that no one in my family uses punctuation when we speak. We just keep talking. And I blame my mother for that because, you know, you had to, once you had the floor, you had to hold the floor. Otherwise, there would be monologues. To no, know. this is all interesting. This is all very, very interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I think it's just the sound of my own voice. Uh, <laughs> but though I, I do tend to enjoy that, I think. Uh, so you know, there's separation. Then there's this initiation. You go through these ordeals, and up comes a crisis where you're confronted with psychologically, in Jungian terms, your shadow, something from the unconscious. You know, in myths, that is often a monster or a villain, you know, a demon, something, you know, the dragon, you know, it has to be slain. There's some sort of death and rebirth that occurs with this initiation. You know, you you die and are reborn. Sometimes it's something very literal you know the the uh christian mythology jesus dies and is resurrected and that's believed to have actually physically occurred you can't get much more death and rebirth than that other times it's something psychological you know i noticed this with my 12 13 14 year old students the child that was dies and is reborn it's a little bit different with guys than with girls with with women in a sense whether they know it or not it happens with the first menstruation because after that point you're something that you could not have been before which is a potential mother you know that's just not something that works when you're eight or ten or whatever but there's a physical transformation to go along with what's happening to you mentally and hormonally and everything else so there's that separation you go through these steps you know you cross these thresholds you have this initiatory experience you face death, you are reborn, you know, you gain a knowledge, you gain a boon out of that, and then there's the return, where you return to the ordinary world, the place you started out, but you have something new, some new knowledge, some boon, something to share with other people. And you do, you share that, and that's basically the Mm -hmm. hero's journey in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Now, that's been adapted a lot. As they say, a lot of people uh, will figure, okay, we have to have exactly these many steps. Um, In fact, before I get there, let me point out where 
that is most commonly used today, because I think we mentioned this in one of our emails back and forth, I, I find the hero's journey is consciously embraced in, in three fields today. And, you know, two of those are probably no surprise. One is uh, the Hollywood Dream Factories uh, film. You know, George Lucas is a big part of that because a lot of people realize, you know, he has credited Campbell for being his Yoda, Star Wars. A lot of people think Joe sat down with him and they worked the film out. But no, Joe knew nothing about Star Wars until the first three movies were in the can. And then he met Lucas and Lucas invited him to see the three films. And there's Joe's work up on the screen, which was amazing because the man didn't see very many movies in his life at all. Uh, so, uh, but prior to Lucas even, there was a, a writer at Touchstone Pictures named Chris Vogler, who had read Campbell's work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and circulated this seven-page memo at Touchstone into various Disney producers saying, look, you know, this hero's journey thing, this is something we want to take a look at in terms of shaping films. And Touchstone and Disney, you know, they really are a factory. They want to turn out movies that are blockbuster movies that tell a compelling, satisfying tale. Vogler eventually expanded that into a book called The Writer's Journey, which many people are familiar with that. <laughs> There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm in the middle of reading it right now. <laughs> it's a great introduction, as yeah. a matter of fact. Now, that boils the 17 steps down into 12 steps, and Vogler kind of sets it up in a three-act format for a three-act play or three-act film script. Mm -hmm. But it is amazing. He does a lot of good work in showing how movies were influenced by that. And that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, they were. Uh, Lion King? Very blatant, you know, very consciously followed that format. The Wizard main, of Oz. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Now, The Wizard of Oz is a good example of how the hero's journey doesn't necessarily come first. You don't read the writer's journey or the hero's journey and then go out and that's a substitute for talent because I'm pretty sure that Joe hadn't written Hero with a Thousand Faces for one thing, when that film came out, mm -hmm. part of the problem I have, and I think Campbell might have this maybe himself a little bit with the way it's looked at today, and I know a lot of people in Hollywood have that problem too, is that the hero's journey has become a meme, kind of a Procrustean bed, where, okay, do we have the right number of steps? Did we get this in? Do we have the meeting with the goddess, the atonement with the father, and so on? You know, we've ticked off everything important, and then you lop off what doesn't fit, or if you don't have enough, you stretch it out to fit that Procrustean bed. Mythology has an analogy for everything. I love going back to that. Procrustean bed is a good thing there. So that's where it can become a straitjacket, and some really bad films have been made with that. But those I know who work in the industry who do very well and who use the hero's journey, and this is really the way George Lucas approached it. This is the way George Miller approached it with uh, Babe and all of the Road Warrior movies. And so an interesting fact, a lot of the 
development of the last Road Warrior movie, which concentrated really on the woman's journey with Charlize Theron, if I'm saying her name correctly, uh, a lot of that was discussed and shaped at the Joseph Campbell Foundation's Mythological Roundtable in Sydney, Australia, because at the time, our Mythological Roundtable, we have some 40 to 50 different local groups around the world that people who get together in the flesh and discuss myth, and sometimes they're going to see a film, watching a video in someone's living room, sometimes they're walking a labyrinth, or listening to lectures, or giving their own presentations, or doing some sort of immersive activity. They happened in Sydney to meet in the boardroom of George Miller's studio there. And the first day that a number of scriptwriters showed up was the first day that the Mythological Roundtable was meeting there. So it was listed up on the board of what's happening when, and the new writers looked, oh, Joseph Campbell Foundation Mythological Roundtable, that's at seven. I guess we have to go to that. So they went and just kept going and kept going. So there was a lot of discussion there about what form the woman's journey, the heroine's journey would take. Where does it differ from the hero's journey? Which is a tangent we may or may not get to. But going back to, to Hollywood there, uh, or even writing in general. You find the hero's journey in books that we don't think of as mythic at all. To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, fits right down the line. There's nothing mythical, magical happening in it, but it fits the pattern. Most stories really do. Anywhere, anytime that you have a hero, which is why I loved it in literature and working with students. Uh, but J.R.R. Tolkien did not pull out his pocket Campbell to know what to do with Frodo and Bilbo and so on as he's writing The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And Frank L. Baum didn't need to consult it decades earlier when he wrote The Wizard of Oz. It's a motif, a pattern, that, an arc that just naturally emerges from a tale well told. So that's Hollywood. Another place where it occurs, and this is a little bit surprising, is Madison Avenue in advertising. And I'd heard a little bit about this, but this was brought to my attention some years ago by a, a, a writer, a journalist who wrote for the Wall Street Journal and was doing a lot of work on advertising firms, and especially over in Europe at the time, and I was noticing the hero's journey popping up. So I explored that a little bit, and sure enough, some advertising agencies would even have it on their menu of you know different things they could offer the client. And that might seem strange at first, but I think Mad Men, uh, if you watch that, mm -hmm. gives a sense that what is advertising, but narrative, it's grounded in story. You want someone to purchase your product, so you create a story that people will move into. And, you know, again, Hero's Journey is a very satisfying, compelling story arc. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, sometimes you, know, you can see it in commercials, the product is the hero. Gee, you know, company's coming over, the house is a mess, as this house is, which is why I have the camera tilted up that way. <laughs> but 
You don't see the clutter or the cats strewn about. So, uh, you know, Mr. Clean saves the day. You have the right product. The product is the hero, but more often it's the consumer who is the hero. You know, companies coming over, you're going to save the day, you go to KFC, you know, and, or you take your family out to eat and you have this satisfying, wonderful experience that draws everybody together. And so people have, you know, 30 seconds to 60 seconds on TV, you know, or maybe even less time as you're flipping the pages of a magazine to connect and the hero's journey is a pattern that we're familiar with. Because it's part of us. It's in our DNA, really, when you think about it. You know, so people can plug into it and get it right away. <clears throat> now, I don't think Joe had Hollywood movies or selling widgets in mind, either one, when he first came across this pattern. The third area where it's used a lot today is in the self-help industry, the personal growth industry, you know, coaching helping people process life experiences and so on. And it is interesting that, in fact, when Joe was, you know, he'd written The Hero's Journey years before it was published. He and uh, Henry Morton Robinson had co-authored a book, Joe's first book on Finnegan's Wake, called A Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake, which was the first look at helping people work their way through James Joyce's very arcane final book that very few people actually read back in the day. Uh, but it was a very good book. Still, they couldn't get it published, but little dust-up occurred regarding plagiarism and Thornton Wilder, which is another long story I won't get into. But it brought Joe and Henry Morton Robinson, who was a published author, he was a novelist, brought them to the attention of Bennett Cerf, who I believe was an editor with Simon & Schuster. <coughs> Pardon me. So he encouraged this controversy that played out over plagiarism, in the pages of the New York Review of Books and so on, and then asked if they had anything that could be published. So Skeleton's Key came out. And then Henry Morton Robinson got hold of Joe and said, hey, Simon & Schuster wants to talk to you about maybe doing a book about myth. They hear that's your specialty. So Joe went in to talk to them about it and was somewhat depressed at first because they wanted something like Bullfinch's mythology. Could you give us a collection of myths that people will enjoy? You know, they'll read the stories and so on. And Joe didn't want to touch that work. So, well, what do you want to write? Well, I'd like to write something about how to read a myth. In fact, that was his original working title for Hero with a Thousand Faces, how to read a myth. And... The person he was talking to looked at him a little strange and said, oh, you mean a self-help book? Which is interesting, because Joe hadn't thought of it as that himself at that point. And it probably was a couple decades before he did. And so they wrote a contract for him. He was paid uh, $250 on the spot, and then $250 once the book was first half done, and then 250 on completion. So he made essentially $750 on Hero with a Thousand Faces. Though over time, royalties eclipsed that figure. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, one little point to bring in about Joseph Campbell, about him not being wealthy, from what I understand, he never made more than 
$15,000 a year in his best year from all of his projects, from his royalties, from his teaching. In fact, he had no retirement from Sarah Lawrence. He was one of these people who really lived the follow your bliss format. Money wasn't the main thing for him, but because of what he did, doors did open, so mm -hmm. he did travel the world a lot. So anyhow, the self-help industry, you have a lot of people who realize there's a lot of value for people here. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that we have uh, a trademark, actually a service mark on the term hero's journey. And when I say we, I mean the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And that's because there are some terms that are identified with Joseph Campbell you know, the hero's journey, no one would be using that term today if it weren't for Joe. And that's what most people, when they hear the term, you know, they immediately have the warm feelies because they relate it to Campbell and what they saw on Power of Myth and so on. Uh, another one is Follow Your Bliss, which is very important as you are going through, you know, the hero's journey. Follow Your Bliss is you know, the way to actualize it. And that doesn't mean do what feels good. It means follow your enthusiasm, follow your passions. Those are the clues to your path when you're off that path. You know, whatever it is, if your enthusiasm is being a rock star or, you know, acting, do that. But if your enthusiasm is accounting, if that's your passion, that's the exact same thing. It doesn't matter what the passion is. You move in that direction. Your hero's journey takes you where it will. For a lot of people, it opens up through the wounds they experience, like in my case. Like people we talked earlier, I think maybe off camera, maybe on, about uh, recovery. A lot of people in the 12-step movement. In fact, I would say that you know the 12 steps in themselves they make possible spiritual experience and you're doing exactly that you know alcohol or drugs whatever it is may be the call to adventure that pulled you out of your ordinary world plunged you into the wasteland but then there's this period of death and rebirth you know initiation you learn something about yourself you know the 12 steps allow you to go through that process of self-reflection and then you come back and you give that boon away to other people who are suffering. And that's how you stay sober or how you stay straight. Very good example of the hero's journey. Though, again, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob weren't thinking that, you know, when AA was founded, which Carl Jung had a little something to do with, too. Again, a tangent <laughs> today. And just lots of little interesting tidbits there. So that, I think, was... Joseph Campbell's genius, that this isn't just something for literature, this is something that affects people's lives, especially today when we're kind of in a post-myth world. There is no prevailing myth that everybody in our culture is plugged into. There are multiple myths, so we have to draw from all the myths of the past and kind of shape our own, find out what the dynamics of our own life is. And that's what the hero's journey is. And that's something that you do very well with this podcast, highlighting ordinary people. And I find that is so important. Ordinary people. Some years ago when Finding Joe, a film by uh, Patrick Takaya Solomon, 
uh, was produced. Uh, Patty Solomon, brilliant work. It's really wonderful. Finding Joe. I don't know if you've seen it, but I have. It, yeah, it's a great, it's a great it, documentary. It, I guess you would call it. <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. Sometimes it's a little much in one setting. Mm -hmm. So I like, you know, I'll show five minutes of it to junior high school students. Five minutes here, five minutes there. I'll pick some things out that will pique their interest because they're not really good at talking heads for an hour and a half, you know, just seeing people in a documentary format. But it really brings up some amazing things. There, there's a marvelous piece in there that relates to follow your bliss is not indulging yourself that I, I really love. Mm -hmm. uh, and you probably are aware of what I'm talking about. But again, we're not here to talk about that film per se. But, um, uh, and I somehow lost we're talking about normal people ordinary people normal people yeah <laughs> yeah and a, a screening of that film before it was finished uh it was screened for an audience of folks and i attended that in fact if you look way down in the credits my name is way down in the credits with a little thank you after a lot of other really important that's people. cool <laughs> well and it's misspelled oh no uh, but that's okay. That's I'll make sure I spell your name correctly for this episode. <laughs> a wonderful project on the periphery to be associated with and see it come together uh -huh. because it was the passion of Patty Solomon as he put it together. But talking to people afterwards, one person brought up a critique to me that I found interesting, that whenever they find the hero's journey or follow your bliss discussed, you know, it, it, it's... A Bill Moyers talking to a Joseph Campbell, who seemed to be famous, well-to-do people. It's Deepak Chopra, or you know, the the Grateful Dead, you know, or you know, this Hollywood star, that Hollywood star, bringing it up, you know, how it has shaped and affected them, and not a lot of ordinary people. Now, all of those folks started out being ordinary people originally, and in fact, I was going to share with you a couple stories of people I know that have been through that. That may not be necessary because from what I see in your podcast, that's what you do. People who they may not even know they're living the hero's journey, but that's how their life unfolds. And I, I do find whether, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to come through. There's this dynamic to life in the same way like every story has the same basic elements of plot. You, know, you start off with an introduction, an explication, kind of setting things up where you learn about character, setting, and, and so on. Then you go through a series of crises. You know, you arrive at a climax. Then there's falling action. That's part of every story. Even if you start the story in the middle and go through flashbacks, to get that other part that's there. The hero's journey is part of our life. It's part of our imagination. But there's really something wonderful about being conscious of it, which is what I started to bring up about how George Lucas and others work with it in film or video gaming. <clears throat> As an example, you know, those who I find do the best job, they're very familiar with it. They've read Campbell's work. They've read Vogler. You know, they... They study that, and then they put it away, and they go out and do their thing. And if they get stuck somewhere, they might pull out Campbell's work to see, okay, you know, how many different ways has 
that's been handled and different myths and so on. You know, and they'll look at that and consider it, but it's not shaping and driving them. Uh, oddly, well, not just oddly, uh, so many people are, well, let me back up again because I'm going off on tangents here, you know, which Geminis have a tendency to do. Let me back up to being conscious of it and how these things unfold in your own life. And I'm using the analogy of how it unfolds in movies and video games. have to talk my way back to where I was. And part of the reason why that's important, which brings up another misconception about it related to the number of steps of the hero's journey, you don't have to follow all those steps. Nobody's life does as long as you have those three main ones. But a lot of people, especially in Hollywood, you know, they're crowding all the steps in. So we have the call to adventure, and then you have to have the refusal of the call. You know, Luke Skywalker, he doesn't want to go rescue the princess. He returns to his parents. That doesn't work out. But that's not always the way it is. Sometimes, you know, King Arthur is hunting in the woods and sees the gazelle and follows it and ends up in an ancient grove he's never seen before, and then an adventure begins, and there is no refusal of the call. The adventure is happening before he even has a chance to refuse, which is the way it happens for so many of us. And then there are, the, the, there are four crises, Campbell brings up, as part of the initiation process, that in myth, he labels, I think, the meeting with the goddess is one. Another is atonement with the father. Another is apotheosis. And then there's a fourth one I'll mention in a moment that I think I relate to more. But those, some people try to work them all into the same story. But the meeting with the goddess, that's kind of the sacred marriage. And it's really representing this bringing together of opposites, the male and the female. You know, yes, the prince and the princess get married, but it's bringing together these opposite parts of ourself, the conscious and the unconscious. You know, the atonement with the father, which you'll find more often in biblical mythology, or maybe a little bit in, you know, the Odyssey when Telemachus, you know, goes out in search of his father. That's kind of, you know, the eternal principle, the father, the God, the Yahweh, and the individual, how you bring those two together. Again, it's the same, that meaning of opposites. Apotheosis, which you'll find more in like Buddhist, Taoist type mythology and so on, you know, or a lot of shamanic stuff. Um, you know, that's recognizing that you have that divinity within yourself. You know, you are and aren't that, you know, thou art that, you know, it, it's within you. So those are three different ways of getting to the same place. And then you have the fire theft, which is a little more dramatic, and we see this often in, in literature and in films and especially in myth, where, you know, someone goes to steal fire from the gods, they obtain it, and then they have to get the heck out of there very fast, so they're chased back to the real world, because the gods don't really want to give that up. And uh, Campbell pointed out that's what a lot of people experienced in the 60s with psychedelics, you know, you kind of are blown into this encounter with the divine and processing it is kind of difficult when you come back mm -hmm. to the real world. So I can identify with that. Yeah. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, now I was just going to say, um, uh, we have a, a few minutes uh, left here. 
Um, what what do you want to leave people with as far as how they can use the hero's journey in their own life? So let's say they're going through some some sort of challenge or some sort of hurdle, and um, they're looking for the hero's journey or Joseph Campbell's Joseph Campbell's work to help get them through that. What would you say to them? Um, primarily, well, even if you didn't have Joseph Campbell, I would say read books, read literature, go to some great films, you know, and look for what they're telling you, especially in literature, because that is our story. Uh, but a lot of people aren't going to do that. So if you look at Joseph Campbell's work or, you know, a hero with a thousand faces is a good place to start. Pathways to Bliss, which is a little more accessible to people, is another way to start. You know, or even Chris Vogler is good because, you know, he kind of encapsulates it. And a lot of people do that well. It's a roadmap to life. And part of that is finding out where you are on the journey. You know, where is it? That, that's what worked for me. As, as I read the story and I saw this isn't something happening outside me. This is where I am in the story. Then things started making sense, and I learned to trust the story. And that's the important thing, also learning to trust what's in yourself, learning to listen. What are those clues? What are the clues to your bliss? You know, what what is that passion? You know, the idea is follow your bliss, not have your bliss, but move in that direction, and things open up. Um listen to your dreams. That might sound strange. And, and that's not just a Martin Luther King, I have a dream, though that's important, your vision. But if you don't have that, if you're not sure what that is, start paying attention to you know, your own dreams. Keep a dream journal. Just journal in general. Anything, putting writing down is a wonderful way of reflecting, kind of separating yourself, life as it's happening to you, to the story that you're in and stepping back and seeing it. But most important is trust trust the process. When we go to a movie or we're reading a book and people are going through trials and ordeals and horrible things are happening, we don't walk out. We don't say, oh, gee, you know, this is never going to work out. And the story may or may not reach a happy ending, but that, that doesn't mean the movie isn't any more satisfying. And when it does reach you know, a happily ever after, that's not a happily ever after forever. We know there's always going to be another hero's journey. Life is a series of these journeys. So part of it is if you do this, if you start becoming aware of what the hero's journey is. You start recognizing in your own life patterns that you weren't aware of previously. And sometimes those are patterns that you're not going to transcend. I am still a mess and somewhat scattered and you know, just, uh, have a tendency to ramble on and all sorts of other things. I have a ton of bad habits that I was not cured of once this Satori happened, and they will be with me forever. But life, it's not so much a circle, it's kind of more a spiral. We keep covering the same ground and going around, but we're at a different level every time we come back around to the same basic place. You know, we can, oh, here we are again. Any project that I do, it's a hero's journey, and I kind of recognize where I am in that. And then, 
you do what the filmmakers and video gamers do that I mentioned. You put it away. You don't have to be, okay, what would Joe do, you know, in this circumstance? You know, you as you're aware of this, then you go out, you find what that passion is, and you live into it. And by living into it, and that might be something that's not a passion. You're not necessarily, in fact, one of the examples I was going to bring up was in acting. There are two people uh, from my hometown. One is Jeremy Renner, who became an Oscar, you know, he's maybe, what, 12, 13 years younger than I am. Won an Oscar for The Hurt Locker, a great actor. He's in those Marvel movies, and he's good. He's followed his bliss, his passion to get where he is. I think of someone else in my hometown, Jack Souza, who is exactly my own age, who, you know, spent a lot of his life, the day job, as a waiter, you know, working whatever he could so he could live his passion, which was acting, which doesn't mean he's rich and famous and earning an Oscar, but he is a brilliant actor and a driving force behind the arts community right here in my hometown and created and opened his own theater and has opened the world of theatrical arts to all sorts of people in Modesto, California, of all places, and has lived a very successful life from following his bliss, which isn't necessarily success the way people judge it. He's won awards, not an Academy Award, but he's every bit as satisfied and fulfilled in what he's doing, especially when he's on the stage or directing or mentoring others, as Jeremy Renner is in Hollywood, who's also having to deal with fans and all sorts of things that go on with fame and celebrity and so on there. So the goal isn't to achieve this idea of, geez, some success out there. It's to have an experience of being alive, of being fully alive. And that's where I find the hero's journey helps. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I was just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, like, with this podcast, it's helped me feel alive because I get to talk to people all over the world and I, and I'm meeting new people all the time and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not famous. I'm not making any money, but it's, I'm just, I'm really enjoying it. And, um, so, so yeah, I was just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that. So. <laughs> exactly. You're touching the lives of people who listen, and what you're doing is so important for the people that you talk to who want to share their journey. And in all those cases, you know, again, it's not someone who's out there being rich and famous. Often it's someone who's been wounded or who's had an experience, and from what they've learned, they turn around and are using that to help what is sometimes a very narrow audience of people who have had the same experience, the same affliction, the same concerns, you know, and totally make a difference in their world. Can I leave you with one little story? Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, actually from Heinrich Zimmer, who uh, was Joseph Campbell's friend and mentor, and in fact, one of the best friends of Carl Jung. A lot of doors were opened for Joe by Heinrich Zimmer, uh, who died early uh, in 1943 in his mid-50s. So Joe's before Hero with a Thousand Faces, he was editing Zimmer's work, doing something similar with Zimmer that uh, David Cudler and Bob Walter and others, and now myself, have done with, uh, or am doing, 
with uh, Joe's work, you know, taking things and making it available to people. He put Zimmer's notes together and created four magnificent books. And one of the stories that Zimmer would tell is about this Rabbi Isaac, the son of Rabbi Jekyll, in uh, Krakow, Poland, I believe, who had a dream one day that he should go to Prague, to Czechoslovakia, and under the bridge leading into the king's palace, dig up, and he'd find a treasure. Well, you know, it's one of those dreams we don't really remember our dreams. Actually, I've got a thousand of mine in dream journals behind me. Over a thousand I've written down. But most people don't really remember those. You have to be trained to remember them. So, you know, maybe he ate a bad blintz or something like that. Next night, though, he has the same dream, and it feels more insistent. He has to journey to Prague. <coughs> Pardon me and dig up this treasure under the bridge. Third night, he has the same dream. Being a man of faith, he takes this as a sign, and even though he's a poor, poor man, he sets out on this journey that takes several weeks because he doesn't have a cart, doesn't have a horse. He's walking. He wears out the soles of his shoes on the way, You know, makes it to Prague, gets there, gets to the bridge over the moat, into the king's palace, doesn't quite know what to do. There are guards there. He can't figure out, you know, he has to go under the bridge and dig, but he's not quite sure where. So he keeps scoping it out. Every day he comes back looking, trying to figure out what he should do. Eventually the captain of the guard comes up to him one day and says, dude, I've noticed you've been hanging out here a lot. We're just a little bit concerned. You know, what are you looking at? And Rabbi Isaac, he has no guile in him, so he tells him the dream, you know, why he came here. And, of course, the captain of the guard laughs at him, said, Gee, I, I don't mean to make fun of you, but that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, imagine if we all did that. Imagine if I did that. Why, I had for three nights in a row this dream that I should drop everything and travel to Warsaw, Poland, and... Under the hearth, in the hovel of this guy named Rabbi Isaac, who's the son of Rabbi Jekyll, I will find this tremendous, amazing treasure. Imagine if I did that. No way. So he doesn't. But Rabbi Isaac returns home, under the hearth, under the stove, digs up this treasure, which takes care of his family for generations. He takes care of the poor and so on. And that's really what we're doing when we're listening to myth and we're listening to ourselves. We're listening to our dreams. Sometimes our journey takes us out there, but ultimately it brings us back here to the hearth and to the heart. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's great. What we're all doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I really like that story. I think that's a good good place to to end on, unless there's anything else that you wanted to mention, anything no, else you want to say? You, you don't want to open that door. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, you're such a wealth of information. I might have to invite you back on if you'll sure. accept. Okay. Anytime. <laughs> well, I know? well, thank you for being patient with me and working this out. I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did too. This is great. This is really good. And I know there were so many other tangents we could have gone on and so much more information. So we'll have to, we'll have to do that another time. <laughs> we'll let it unspool.
Well, thank you very, very much. Yes, thank you. It was very nice meeting you and talking to you.